Like I said, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, and hopefully you found your way there already. This is one of the sections where we begin to wrap up the story of Ruth, and uh, today we're going to focus on a bride that gets redeemed. So a bride is redeemed, and I love this because what happens here really does point us to what happens here at the communion table. And we're going to see the connection between the two, how Ruth being redeemed by Boaz in many ways helps us to anticipate what it means to be redeemed by Jesus as the church. And so that's where we're going to be headed today. So let's pray together and we'll jump right into it. Father, we thank you because today we woke up and we have breath. Uh, We are able to live just mindful of Acts 17, the Apostle Paul preaching and saying that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. And sometimes we ignore that and sometimes we neglect to acknowledge you, that all that we have and all that we are is owing to you and your grace. So God, we want to stop and just thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that today around the world there has been, there are, and there will be countless millions of people who are cherishing, who are delighting in, who are experiencing the joy of the gospel. So we want to pray for our brothers and sisters as they likely are praying for us, Lord, that we as the universal church would feel a solidarity, that we would feel as though we are one. And I pray for our time together here in our local church, Golden Hills, that you would be pleased to meet with us. Lord, thank you for how you've gathered a people, even in this congregation, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and this is a foretaste of what you have in store for us. So God, meet with us, I pray, and teach us all the things we need to know, and we'll give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the book of Ruth has been kind of a roller coaster, but it's always going up. And what I mean by that is when we opened it up in chapter one, we saw calamity, we saw death, we saw Naomi ascribing to God the, I don't know, mean words of kind of, you did this to me. And we see in the opening chapters just the, I don't know, the sadness, the despair, the suffering. And little by little, we're beginning to see glimpses of God coming through and beginning to orchestrate and beginning to guide and govern the affairs of all the people in this story to bring about what it is he wants to bring about. His purpose is beginning to come to the forefront. And it's a good book for us to read today in our day and age, especially because there are there's so many of us that could tell stories about things in our life that we did not foresee that radically altered the trajectory of our life. And high school students, middle school students, you need to understand this lesson right now that there is coming a day where you have all these plans and hopes and dreams and you're asking and praying that God would do something, but something is going to interrupt those plans and you are going to find yourself despairing and questioning God. That will happen. Ask your parents. Parents, don't lie to your kids. Life is hard. It's not always predictable. It's not always easy. It's not comfortable. It's a challenge. But the question is, what will you do when the challenges arise? What will you do when your plan in life is somehow hijacked and you feel like you don't know what to do, don't know where to go? What will you do in that moment? High school students, middle school students, you must listen. You need to cling to the promises of God. And parents, 
If that's good advice for them, who are they going to hear it from? From you. Speak it in your, in your homes. Talk about it at dinner. Talk about it on your car rides. Put away the iPads and rehearse the gospel once in a while. I had a number of things happen in my life that altered the direction of my life, but probably the biggest one was when I had all the plans and hopes and dreams of playing professional baseball. My childhood dream, my, my desire in life, everything I did and thought about and everything I worked towards was playing professionally and everything was open to me and I was almost there, man. I could taste it until one fateful day, sunny afternoon when I ran into a fence at full speed, knocked myself unconscious and in the process so, did such irreparable damage to my ankle that I couldn't play baseball like I used to anymore. And in that moment, an unforeseen moment, my entire life changed. And in that moment, I remember feeling despair. I remember feeling anger. I remember hating God. I remember feeling as though he did this to me. How dare he? Doesn't he know I have big plans? You know that Campus Crusade thing? God, you know, God loves you and has wonderful plans for your life. It may include busting your ankle up. It may include getting into a horrific car accident. These unforeseen circumstances we can't control, they sometimes just happen to us. What will you do? in that moment. And I think that's why God has given us the book of Ruth. That's why he's given us stories like Joseph, the book of Job, the story of Esther. He's given us these stories so that we can take in our hands in this Bible and we can read with our own eyes and see there that God is indeed sovereign over all things. He's providentially in control. And what has happened to you is not outside of God's domain. In fact, God rules and reigns. He's behind it. He's within it. He's with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And these stories remind us of God's steadfast love for his people. That's the promises we have to recall. So the book of Ruth is just an amazing book of God giving us the story that behind every frowning providence, he is hiding a smiling face. God will work it out. God is good. And he promises us over and over and over that he will work for our good so that he will get the glory and we will have the joy. And I think about it now Standing here now, it's just so surreal because it's, I, I never could have anticipated that 15, 16 years ago that God would bring it about that I would stand here and preach. And so what I only saw as a frowning providence, I now stand 15 years later and I see, oh, there is the smile of God. There it is. It took 15 years to get there see it. And I have a feeling that's exactly what Naomi and Ruth are kind of experiencing is there's a frowning providence. The weightiness of despair is over them, but just there's this peaking, there's this breaking forth of, of glory and joy, and they're seeing and perceiving and beholding. There's his face. That's why I love the book of Ruth. Couple things we need to keep in mind as we approach this text. I've already talked about this, but I want to remind us once again the role of God's sovereignty and providence. God is sovereign over all things, which means He is the Lord of lords and the ruler of all things. There is nothing that is not under His authority. He is in control of all things. But providence is a little bit different. Divine providence is this that God continually 
is involved with every created thing in such a way that he powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions in order to fulfill his purposes. And the Bible is filled with text after text after text of these truths. And I hope and I pray that you will come to see if, if God isn't providentially in control and God isn't sovereign over all, all things, then God isn't God. And so we can cling to these promises and these truths about the character and nature of God. The other thing that we need to keep in our, the forefront of our minds is the concept of covenant. If you remember, we already studied the, the covenant series in our campaign. We learned there that God has chosen to reveal himself in a special way. He has a particular name. His name is Yahweh, and Yahweh is the name he has revealed himself by in order to remind us consistently that he is a God who makes covenants and keeps covenants. And you can see that the word L-O-R-D in small caps is throughout the book of Ruth reminding us that Yahweh is in control. Yahweh is at work here. And the definition of co covenant is, uh, as Tom Schreiner said, it's a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. But I love the way Pastor John Piper puts it. This is more pastoral and applicable. He says that in co studying covenants, we see the biblical proof that God's job description does, does indeed include the responsibility to withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly and to work for those who wait for him and to turn every strep throat and stripped clutch and stinging put down for our etern eternal good. That's what I would offer as a definition, he says, of God's covenants. When God makes a covenant, he reveals his own job description. He signs it. In almost every case, he comes to the covenant partner he lays his job description out and he says, this is how I will work for you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. If you will love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me to keep my word. As God just laying it out there in covenant, I am for you and I will work for you and I will do all, I will, I will take everything and I will work it for your good. Trust me. And I love that concept. And the book of Ruth is, consistently mentioning this covenant but it's not doing it explicitly it's doing it implicitly it's implying it by the word Yahweh and as we'll see in a little bit by the covenant ceremony that takes place and why does God work for his people like this why does he make covenant simply because God loves them the, the Hebrew word is hesed steadfast love the faithfulness steadfast love of God so keep these in the in the forefront of your minds as we read through this chapter 4 but I have to go back to chapter 3 and remind us there's a cliffhanger here in the story. Remember, Ruth has come to Boaz, proposed to Boaz the potential of him marrying her and thus redeeming both Naomi and Ruth. And so Boaz is very ecstatic about the opportunity to marry Ruth because she's a worthy woman and he is a worthy man. That would be a great match. And so... In the cover of darkness, in the middle of the night, while they're there on the threshing floor, Boaz makes a promise to her. Simply this, in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, Remain here tonight and in the morning if this Redeemer. Now remember, Boaz reminds or tells Ruth that there is somebody of, uh, that's a relative of Naomi who's closer, is a closer relative than I am. So we have to ask him first if he's willing to redeem you and to redeem the land. And if he's not, then I'll do it. Okay, and so Boaz simply says, in the morning, if this unnamed redeemer will redeem you, then good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. 
And so what Boaz is saying is, Ruth, one way or another, I promise you that tomorrow you will be redeemed either by me or by this unnamed redeemer. But I promise you, it is going to happen. Guaranteed. And he guarantees that in chapter 3, verse 15, where Boaz tells Ruth to bring the garment that she's wearing, hold it out. And as she held it out, he pours into the garment six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she goes home and shows Naomi. This is a deposit, as Pastor Larry preached last week. It's a deposit which guarantees that Boaz will come through. It's an absolute guarantee that Boaz is going to come through. He is con- it's confidence. It's assurance. They just have to wait. And so in verse 18 of chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That's the definition of hope. It's Naomi and Ruth having a confident expectation of the future. That's the definition of hope. Confident expectation of the future. It's not a wish. They're not like, oh, wringing their hands. Oh, I don't know. She says, absolutely. He is the kind of man that will see to it. It will come to fruition. I love that. It's hope. And as Pastor Larry says, this kind of hope reminds us of what we as Christians have as our hope. That this deposit that uh, Boaz gave to Ruth is similar to the deposit that God gives us as Christians. But the deposit God gives us as Christians is the deposit of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. We actually see this in Ephesians chapter 1, where in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes. Verse 9, that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. You notice that we have obtained it. We have redemption. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope, confident expectation of the future, in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And look at this in verse 13 and 14. In in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the, Holy, with the promised Holy Spirit. What's the significance of that? Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 11, it says we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 14 says we will obtain an inheritance. Which is it? The answer is yes. We have obtained it so surely, so absolutely confidently, and the confidence and the surety of our inheritance is not based on our own faith and how like, severe and intense our faith is. It is guaranteed, praise God, not on me, it's guaranteed on the Holy Spirit. And since God does not lie, when he gives us the Holy Spirit and says, that Holy Spirit in you, deposit, guarantee, you're getting everything. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he helps us as Christians remember that we are in limbo right now. We have been redeemed, but we're not yet fully redeemed. Like Ruth and Naomi. 
They were promised to be redeemed by Boaz, but they're not yet. It hasn't come to fruition yet. So the question is, well, what does it look like to be fully redeemed? I'm glad you asked. That's later in the sermon. I love what Naomi, how, how the Bible reveals Naomi. She's a great theologian. Remember chapter one, she's brutally honest. God, how dare you do this to me? I'm so bitter. You've done all this calamity upon me. How dare you? Chapter two, all of a sudden Naomi sees Ruth come back from the field of Boaz and says, oh, okay, that's like, hmm. And now here in chapter three, she's filled with hope and she is expressing her confidence in Boaz, not because he himself is the source of her confidence, but she can perceive, according to chapter one, according to chapter two, that now in chapter three, she can perceive that Yahweh is behind it all. That's what the narrator wants us to get. Naomi is beginning to see the smiling face behind the frowning providence. Oh, chapter four, you guys ready for this? Verse one. Now remember, she says, let's wait, my daughter. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until we find out how the matter turns out. And so chapter 4, verse 1 is how this matter is about to turn out. Verse 1 and 2. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate. By the way, the gate is the place where official business takes place in the city. And he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, the one who he told Ruth he will work this out with, of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. I love that word, and behold, because it's supposed to be like, and check this out. It just so happened. That, think about it. He wakes up in the morning. I'm going to resolve this issue. He goes to the gate and waits. And it just so happens that the Redeemer shows up. Do you see God at work? All right, keep going. And so he says to this Redeemer, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, here's what's awesome about this, is this redeemer, he's not even named. Now, you remember in the book of Ruth, the names mean something, right? Elimelech, my God is king. Naomi, she means pleasant, but then it's bitter. Names mean things. This guy gets no name, which means he's meaningless. But what I love about it is the New Jewish Publication Society, which translates the Old Testament, they actually translate this passage, Turn Aside Friend, as this. Come over here, Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> Man. So here's Mr. So-and-so. Right, check it out, verse 3. It's so good. Then he said to Mr. So-and-so, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, so that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Let's stop right there. If you and I were to sit and read this story just cover to cover, or from beginning to end, we would feel in our soul the plot. But since we break it up all the time and we're always hunting for fortune cookie sayings out of the Bible, we don't necessarily follow the story. So I want to encourage you, please read the story beginning to end. I know, I know that 30 minutes is going to be, I know, you're not going to find the time. But Netflix off, scrolling social media off, 30 minutes. And when you read it, you feel the plot. You're like, oh. And what you feel in this moment is the plot is thickening. Because we all want Boaz to marry Ruth. That's what we want. And Boaz comes to Mr. So-and-so and says, look, 
either you or I are going to redeem this girl. I want you to have first dibs. We're kind of thinking, Boaz, seriously? Can't you tell him that the like, field is like full of gophers and it's like, you know, has a cemetery no one knows about? Like, why don't you try to help this man decide no? And so we feel that. We want Boaz to get the girl, right? And so what does Mr. So-and-so say? He says this, I will redeem it. Oh, God. We have watched so many movies. We are hopeless romantics in our culture. We know that boy meets girl, boy and girl can't get together because of all this stuff. Then all of a sudden, and then the last thing happens. You're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. And then you're like, how is it going to work out? In the last 10 minutes, they finally get together, right? Everyone's ripping off Ruth. Everyone's ripping off Ruth. So Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. And we all hang our head going, no, we want Boaz to get the girl. But Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz is a godly man. Boaz knows God's word, and he has another card to play. He knows the Leverite marriage law, and so he does this, verse 5. Then Boaz says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, if you get the land, you get the girl too. Remember, she's some pagan chick from Moab. She's been, she's been married for 10 plus years to a dude named Malin, whose name means sickness. And for 10 years, she ne was never able to conceive a child. Sounds good, right? And look at the, Mr. So-and-so says this. Yeah, I cannot redeem her for myself. <laughs> Lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I love Boaz. He lays it all out. By the way, I got this other card to play. Boom. The guy says, no way. You take her. Boaz hops on it. He doesn't wait. He's like, okay, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. You know, it's super spiritual. I'll pray. Look at verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz drew off his sandal. That would be awesome in today's culture. <laughs> you and your wife still thinking about buying the car? Yeah, we're going down. I'm going to hand in my sandal tomorrow. <laughs> Hilarious stuff. So here comes Boaz. Look at this in verse 9. Or excuse me, at the end of verse 8. Boaz kicks off his Birkenstock, gives it to Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> and verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses. You see what Boaz is doing? I'm making this. I'm, I'm taking it all the way to the bank. I'm, I'm making sure I get the girl. You guys saw it, right? You, you, yeah. First thing he does, verse 9, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malin. That's the first thing. I get the land. And they're like nodding. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. See what Boaz does? He seals the deal. I love this. And if, you know, if we were preaching this for a different reason, I might say something like this. Dating forever is not biblical. Seal the deal. Get married. 
That makes sense? All right. Middle school kids, high school kids. Don't be living together. Don't be dating forever. Honor God and honor the spouse. Seal the deal. Make a covenant. Marry that person. Oh, that's good. So the, the elders, they serve as witnesses. The elders begin to pray. I love this section. They begin to pray a blessing upon Ruth and Boaz individually and then together, verse 11. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders, they said, we are witnesses. We've saw what has happened. This is legit. And then they pray, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So that's the first petition. May Ruth become fruitful. If you remember Genesis 29, 31, where God, where uh, Moses writes that God opened Leah's womb, but Rachel was barren. And then in chapter 30, verse 9 of Genesis, it says God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Do you see what's happening in this prayer? They are praying that Ruth would become fruitful. Ten years she's been barren. But Leah was barren. Rachel was barren. And barrenness is not an obstacle that God cannot overcome. Why? Because God is sovereign. And God can, God can do it. Does it mean he will do it just because he can? No. But we pray because we know God can. And since God is able, we pray knowing that he may not give us what we're praying for, but we know at least he's able to do it. That honors God. And that's how they're praying, that she would become fruitful and multiply. Second uh, request or petition is this. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, may you have a great name. May you be respected. Verse 12 they pray for both of them together this time. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Three petitions. Be fruitful and multiply. Have a great name. Produce an offspring. We studied covenants together, church. Do those three things sound familiar at all to you? Well, it's the same command that God gave to Adam and Noah, be fruitful and multiply. It's the same thing that God promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham, that he will have a great name, become a blessing to the nations, and that he would produce an offspring. And by the way, those three elements are the very things that will become the centerpiece of the Davidic covenant. And remember, David is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. You telling me God ain't at work? God's in the details. There is nothing in your life, no matter how mundane it is, that God is not involved in. That also means there is nothing in your life that God can't use for your good, for his glory, that overwhelmingly overflows in joy. Nothing. So when you wake up tomorrow thinking, I gotta go to this job, I got to take these snot-nosed kids to school. I got to get this child to eat breakfast. I got to get them to wear clothes that actually are appropriate. 
no matter how mundane it is, God is in the midst of that. He's there. That's cool. Now, how, what in the world does this have to do with communion, you may ask? Good question. For that, we have to dip into the next verse, which isn't technically in, in, in the sermon, but here it is. And because of all this, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. She became his wife. Redemption is finished. He promised his wife. He, well, and he in his head probably knew that what was about to happen, hopefully, maybe, I don't know. But he promised this woman, I'm going to do what I can. And he came through. And he redeemed his wife. In other words, he redeemed his bride. Now, what that has to do with communion is this. When we look at this little ceremony of the sandal and the witnesses and all of that, everything in there are elements that are necessary for a covenant. Every covenant has witnesses. Every covenant has two parties. Every covenant has pledges and oaths that they make to one another. And every covenant has some sort of sign. And in verses 7 through 12, you have covenant. And what's amazing is you look at the story of this little scene of a covenant that Boaz has redeemed Ruth. And you're thinking, whoa, okay, covenant, redemption, bride. That's exactly what we're here to do in remembrance, in communion, is we are here to remember that God so loved fallen humanity that he sent his one and only son to come to earth, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So that just at the right time, Jesus Christ would be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And by his perfect obedience, he accomplished what we could not accomplish, namely perfect obedience to everything God commanded. And not only that, but we read in Galatians 3 that he became a curse for us to redeem us from under the law by being spiked to a cross. And on the cross, his blood was shed. And what the blood of Jesus accomplished was the purchasing of a people. And when Jesus rose from the dead, what he did was he demonstrated everything that he said is true. And the fact that he is resurrected from the dead means death has been defeated, sin has been vanquished, evil will one day become no more. And everything Jesus promised to you is guaranteed. And after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and then did what? Sent the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To be a deposit in us guaranteeing that everything he promised is true. And in the meantime, you and I wait and we wait. As the bride of Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we wait for that day when finally in fullness and in glory, Jesus will return to do what? To gather his bride. Revelation 19. And we will be the spotless bride of Christ and we will enjoy in his presence what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until that day comes, we are called to eat a different meal and it's this meal and this meal is meant to be an anticipation for the greater meal. 
So we gather as the church, as the bride of Christ, to eat this meal together, to remember that Christ has redeemed us, and yet at the same time, our full redemption is not yet here. It's not yet complete. And so we eat the meal until he comes. That's the gospel. And if you will repent from your sins and trying to save yourself, and if you will believe this, that Jesus is enough, and that by confessing your sins and believing that he by his blood will forgive you of your sins, you can be included in God's covenant people and therefore have your sins taken away and have the hope, a confident expectation that God will save you from his wrath. I've just said a lot. And what I want to do with the time I have is read some verses about how this all fits together because I can say all this, but you need to see it. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 is where the Apostle Paul writes about communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is a covenant meal that is enacted by Jesus when he was crucified and his blood was shed. That blood redeems sinners from their alienation and separation from God. And it, it redeems them or it saves them from the wrath of God. And what it does is it brings people to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Don't forget the second part. Ephesians 2 is true. We get reconciled to God with our sins forgiven, but we also get reconciled to each other. That's part of the gospel, is the church. And that's why if you neglect church, in some ways you're neglecting the gospel. The new covenant is redemption accomplished. And what I mean by that is when we come to the communion table, we are not coming to the communion table with bread in our hand or a cup in our hand, and we are not thinking, man, I need to go and do a bunch of stuff in order to be right with God. No. Communion with the bread and the cup is supposed to confront you with the fact that you can't do anything to be made right with God, but God in Jesus Christ has done it. It is finished. So we simply repent and believe. Repent and believe. It's finished. He did it. It's done. That's why Hebrews 9.12 says this, that Jesus, he entered once and for all into the holy places, which is the presence of God the Father, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And when Jesus went to God the Father with his own blood and presented it to the Father as our purchase, our redemption, look at what happened he secured an eternal redemption. Secure, eternal redemption. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not a potentiality. It wasn't as if God's saying, okay, I crucified my son. Now let's just sit back and just really hope people, people believe. I don't know. Hope so. Can you imagine such a thing? No, no, no. When Jesus went to the cross and his blood was shed there, he actually accomplished something. Hebrews 9.12 says what he accomplished was eternal redemption. And then you read in Romans 3, verse 22 to 25, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile or between Boaz and Ruth. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. You just have to receive by faith that Jesus' death actually accomplished something, namely the redemption of sinners to justify them before a holy God. And what is remarkable about all this is generally speaking, we can ask the question, who has God actually redeemed? Not potentially, but actually. Just think about this for a second. Jesus was crucified and risen, and no one had yet believed. Everything was in the future. So if everything was in, every believer was in the future, then we might say everything was a potential redemption, but that's not how the Bible talks. The Bible talks as if this accomplished all of that. Just think about mind-blowing truth, that is. If you don't believe it, look at this. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. That the angels, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus ransomed a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation not potentially, but actually. Jesus did not redeem everyone, but he redeemed people from every different kind of walk of life. More specifically, Jesus has redeemed or ransomed or purchased a particular people, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where the apostle Paul summons the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Look at this which Jesus obtained with his own blood. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened there was he actually purchased something. What was it? It was the church. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is why I say the church is an essential part of the gospel. And I know that there are funner things to do, watching football, keeping up with your fantasy team. I know the kids have sports. I know all that stuff, church and whatever. But do we not see, gathered in this place, look at us. Who'd have thought? What does the world have to offer as an explanation for what we look like right now? Multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Look at this. God has done this. God has redeemed a people for himself. Not only that, but lastly, communion reminds us that we wait for our Redeemer to return for his bride. Speaking about the second coming, Luke 21, 28, says when the Son of Man comes, straighten up, raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So wait a minute, are we redeemed or is our redemption coming? Yes. Now what is the redemption we have achieved, or not achieved, what we have received? The redemption received is the forgiveness of sins in which we are adopted as God's children, but the redemption that we have not yet received is this in Romans 8, that we Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit as a deposit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, which is what? What does it mean to wait eagerly for God? It's the redemption of our bodies. And in verse 24 it says, for in this hope we were saved. You mean to tell me that in the hope of a new body we are saved? Yes. That's what the Bible says. 
Because our full redemption is not just being forgiven of our sins. Our full redemption is that one day we're getting a resurrected body. Physically, tangibly, God is making all things new again. And until that day, God's not done yet. And in the meantime, we wait. And we wait. And we pray. Lord Jesus, come. Complete what you have started. Finish the work of redemption. But remember, the work of redemption has already begun. That's what we're commemorating here. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that it's going to come to fruition. And when Jesus returns, it's a wrap. We will receive our glorified, resurrected bodies, and we will dwell with him forever and ever. Why this matters is this, brothers and sisters, high school students, middle school students, parents, you need to understand this when calamity comes upon you. You need to remember that when Jesus bought you, he bought you. We are blood-bought people. And by being a blood-bought person, that means Jesus obtained us and he, we are in his hands. And you remember what Jesus said about being in his hands? Nobody will be able to pluck you out. There's no power, there's no authority, there's nothing greater than God. And God promises, since I have you, you can't ever be stolen from me. I got you. That'll get you up in the morning. That'll make you confident. That'll make you bold. That'll make you like Jesus. Father, I pray that as we come to communion, you would bless our time. God, that we would partake of the bread and the cup in joyful expectation. That this meal is a reminder, not only of the redemption that you have begun, but the redemption that you will ultimately complete. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because you are not a liar, you said that you're coming back for your bride. So Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Finally and fully, establish your kingdom. And I pray that we as a church, having been reconciled to you, would also seek to be reconciled to one another. And we would cherish the beautiful work you're doing at Golden Hills Community Church. That we are a multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic gathering, which is a foretaste of the new creation. And so, God, thank you for your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.